This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. This opera's heroine, a true diva, bargains with Rome's sinister chief of police for the life of her lover. But things get out of hand and everyone dies. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Giacomo Puccini's still sensational drama, Tosca. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. This season, the Metropolitan Opera rang in the new year with a new production of Tosca. For today's episode, composer, conductor, and guild lecturer Victoria Bond takes a deeper look into one of the most iconic operas in the repertoire. Tosca is about a diva, and the original play La Tosca by the French playwright Victorienne Sardou, on which the opera is based, was written for the actress and diva Sarah Bernhardt. Her speaking voice was called the Golden Bell, and her ability in pantomime was so legendary that Sardou included a scene for her in the second act of the play where, after having stabbed to death the villainous Scarpia, she solemnly places candles on either side of his head. This scene was kept in the libretto of the opera, and it is a brilliant theatrical stroke allowing Tosca a quiet moment to demonstrate her dignity and control after her violent and brutal murder of Scarpia. By the end of the opera, all the principal characters are dead. The path to the opera's completion was likewise strewn with bodies, albeit not dead, but certainly maimed. The first casualty was librettist Ferdinando Fontana, he had written librettos for Puccini's earlier operas, Le Vili and Edgar, and he brought the idea of creating an opera based on Sardou's play to Puccini in 1889. Naturally, he assumed that he would be the librettist. However, he was eliminated from the project in favor of librettists Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. The next casualty was composer Alberto Franchetti, who was a well-known composer and a rival of Puccini's, whose opera Cristoforo Colombo had received wide praise. 
He had secured the rights to La Tosca through his publisher Ricordi and was at work on his opera with librettist Luigi Illica. However, when Ricordi learned that Puccini was interested in the property, Franchetti was summarily dropped and Ricordi successfully convinced him that this opera was not for him. Sardou and Puccini were not immediately drawn to each other. Because Puccini was not well known outside of Italy at the time, Sardou at first refused to grant him permission to set his play. Although Puccini was at first attracted to the Tosca story, on closer examination he was not so certain that a story with so much violence and brutality would fit his romantic style, better suited to his operas Manon Lescaut and La Bohème. However, Verismo opera was the current trend, both in literature and opera, as exemplified by such writers as Balzac, Flaubert, and Zola, and composers Mascagni, Leon Cavallo, and Bizet, whose operas Cavalleria Rusticana in 1890, Pagliacci in 1892, and Carmen in 1875, were wildly popular with audiences. Even the veteran Giuseppe Verdi had toyed with the idea of setting the Tosca story as an opera, after hearing Illica read the libretto to him in Paris. He concluded that he was too old for such a project, but his interest was not lost on Puccini, who wholeheartedly jumped into the Verismo fray. The nature of Verismo was excess, an excess of passion leading to brutal murder, and Tosca had all these elements. The story was not entirely new, and Sardou was accused of plagiarism by a number of other playwrights. He maintained that his Tosca was based on an idea derived from an actual incident in 16th century France. Tosca, however, is set in Rome in the year 1800 on the eve of Napoleon's victory at Marengo and frames the intimate romantic relationship between Tosca and Cavaradossi within the context of the Republic, personified by Angelotti, a former Roman consul who has just escaped from prison, having been jailed by Scarpia, the chief of police. Puccini worked with two librettists, Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giacosa. Giacosa was not fond of the Sardou play and felt it ill-suited to opera. He had worked on the librettos of Manon Lescaut and La Bohème and said they were poetry without a plot, but that Tosca was a plot without poetry. The three collaborators had a tempestuous relationship, and at one point Giacosa threatened to quit. Puccini was very involved in not only shaping the final libretto and lyrics, but also in crossing his own publisher at one point. It is telling to examine several moments in the opera when Puccini's sure theatrical instincts won out over his collaborators. Ilica and Giacosa had written an aria for Cavaradossi during the scene in which he is tortured offstage by Scarpia's henchmen. Puccini rejected this idea, as he felt rightly that it was unrealistic and went against dramatic verisimilitude, reverting to an obsolete convention. He scrapped the philosophical moment, preferring Cavaradossi to cry out in pain as he is being tortured offstage, focusing the attention on Tosca's reaction. Likewise, the librettists had created Farewell to Art and Life for Cavaradossi to sing as he awaits his execution. 
Puccini deleted this in favor of the hero's main regret, the loss of his beloved. In most situations, the words come first, but in this instance, Puccini knew what music he had to write for the scene, so he wrote it and dummied in his own words. It fell to Giacosa to come up with a text that fit the music. Puccini even went against his publisher, Ricordi, who criticized Cavaradossi's Act Two aria, O Dolci Mani, recognizing that the music originally came from Puccini's opera Edgar. Ricordi wrote, It is fragmentary music, music of meager line that reduces the characters to pygmies. One of the most beautiful passages of lyrical poetry is underlaid by a scrappy and modest little melody, which, to make matters worse, comes from Edgar. Stupendous if sung by a peasant woman from the Tyrol, but out of place in the mouth of Tosca and Cavaradossi. However, Puccini stuck to his belief that this music apply to the scene, and finally, after playing and singing through the scene himself, convinced Ricordi of its rightness. This is what he wrote to Ricordi in 1899. My dear Signor Giulio, your letter was an extraordinary surprise to me. I am still under the unpleasant impression. Nevertheless, I am quite convinced that if you read the act through again, you will change your opinion. This is not vanity on my part, no. It is the conviction of having colored to the best of my ability the drama which was before me. You know how scrupulous I am in interpreting the situation or the words and all that is of importance before putting anything on paper. The detail of my having used a fragment of Edgar can be criticized by you and the few who are able to recognize it and can be taken as a labor-saving device if you like. As it stands, if one rids oneself of the idea that it belongs to another work, if one wipes out Edgar, Act 4, it seems to me full of the poetry which emanates from the words. Oh, I am sure of this, and you will be convinced when you hear it in its place in the theater. As for its being fragmentary, I wanted it so. It cannot be a uniform and tranquil situation such as one connects with one, one with other love. It cannot be a uniform and tranquil situation as one connects with other love duets. Tosca's thoughts continually return to the necessity of a well-acted fall on Mario's part and a natural bearing in face of the shooting party. As for the end of the duet, the so-called Latin hymn, of which I am not yet had the pleasure of seeing the poet's version, I too have my doubts about it, but I hope that it will go well on the stage. So Puccini did play it for Ricordi, and Ricordi finally consented that it was the right thing to do. Puccini borrowed several other musical fragments for Tosca, most notably two works from his brother Michele. In searching for appropriate music for the gavotte that is played outside Scarpia's apartment in Act Two, Puccini looked to his early student works for something that recalled the Baroque style that would have been played at that time. He came across two works by his then deceased brother and incorporated them into the scene. Both the gavotte and Cavaradossi's outburst, L'Alba Vindice Apar, were incorporated into the scene, and 25 years later, Puccini acknowledged their origin shortly before he died, 
saying his intention was that his brother should live again through him. Tosca was criticized as, quote, a tawdry little shocker and, quote, the Caligula of the stage because all of its principles meet with violent death. Puccini even joked that perhaps they should kill off Spoleto so as to be complete. Debussy heard and hated the opera and Puccini's overtly passionate music, which was so foreign to him. However, Puccini admired Debussy and incorporated elements of his musical vocabulary, such as the whole tone scale, into Tosca. Tosca does not have an overture. As a matter of fact, it has three chords which open the work. That's it. That's all you get for an overture. And then we are immediately thrust into the action of the, of the story itself, which is very dramatic and uh, is Angelotti, who has just escaped from prison, and he is trying to find the key to a hiding place that his sister has provided for him in their chapel in the, in the cathedral. <laughs> So the music is very full of action. The next um, theme that we have is complete contrast, and that is the sacristan, which is a comedic moment. And as you can hear from the music, it's very lighthearted and cheerful and jolly. complete contrast to what we've had before.
The theme of bells in this opera begins early. Of course, it's set in Rome, and Rome is full of churches. So the first bell that we hear is the Angelus, and the sacristan, hearing the sound of the Angelus, um, kneels down and prays. And the sound of the Angelus is just this note, just Fs. And what Puccini does is put these wonderful chords underneath the sound of the F. Angelus Domini Nuziavit Marie, et concepit de Spiritus Sancto, et Cianchilla Domini, fiat mihi secundum Now this idea of having those repeated notes going through the music goes through the entire opera. And as a matter of fact, Cavaradossi's first aria, Recondite Armonia, also has these repeated Fs as follows. We have not met the heroine yet of the opera, Tosca, and we hear her offstage calling Mario, 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 somewhat in desperation. And then we have this glorious Puccinian melody. Cross this melody later when she sings her famous Visidarte aria. I'd like to contrast Mario, who reacts to Tosca's questions about the painting that he is making, which is of Mary Magdalene, and the woman in the painting has blue eyes, and Tosca sees that, and she's rather upset because she herself has black eyes, and she, of course, would think that Mario, being so in love with her, would choose her as a model for the Mary Magdalene and not this unknown woman. And so she says, well, why have you painted um, her eyes blue? They should be black like mine. And she's also extremely suspicious. And this idea of jealousy 
is something that goes through the opera. When she first comes in, she says, I heard whispering, who are you talking to? And she is assuming that he was talking with a woman. And then when she sees the portrait and she sees this blonde woman with blue eyes, this only increases her suspicion. And Mario says, no, 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 I, I love you. And there is room in the world for both women with blue eyes and blonde hair and women with black eyes and dark hair like yourself. And I wanted to contrast this with Scarpia in Act Two, who also says, yes, the world is full of diversity, and I want to go after each of these beauties. And so it's a very different sensibility than Cavaradossi, who is not saying, I'm in love with this woman with the blonde hair and the blue eyes, but just saying, I just saw her, and, and she was right for this particular um, character that I wanted to portray. But that doesn't mean that I'm in love with her, because I'm in love with you, Tosca. And so this is his melody. So the idea of bells continues with uh, Scarpia. Now Scarpia has found a fan in the uh, in the chapel where um, uh, Angelotti has been uh, hidden, and it is the fan of Angelotti's sister, the Marchesa, um, and it is her portrait, uh, which uh, Cavaradossi has uh, painted for the Mary Magdalene. So. Uh, as Scarpia finds this fan, he makes an allusion to Otello of Shakespeare and says, well, with Iago, he found a handkerchief, but look, I have found a fan. 
And when Tosca comes back into the church looking for Mario and doesn't find him and sees Scarpia, and Scarpia says, ah, well, I found this fan uh, by your lover, Cavaradossi. Uh, take a look at it. And she looks at it, and she sees the Atavani um, insignia, and this only confirms her suspicion that Cavaradossi is carrying on a secret affair with the Marchesa. Um, so now Scarpia knows that he has her in his power. And of course, his ultimate goal is, I wouldn't say seduce her so much as rape her, because this is not a mutually uh, agreeable arrangement. And so uh, what Puccini does is he uses the bells of the Te Deum um, in a way to build the momentum, to build the intensity of Scarpia and the contrast of having this religious ceremony, which is so, um, so deep and profound, in the background as Scarpia in the foreground is singing about his lust for Tosca is a very, very powerful moment. And Puccini achieves the power partially through the repetition of the bells underneath what Scarpia sings. And here are the bells by themselves. interjects the whole tone scale above those bells, giving us this sense of something strange and disorienting going on. So the bells continue and uh, Scarpia gets more and more passionate and finally this ends with the chorus singing in unison at the end of the of the act, and it is so powerful that I thought you would enjoy hearing this scene complete. Respiri una carrozza, presto, seguila dovunque vada, non visto, provvedi, sta bene, il contegno, palazzo parnese, Gelosia, 
to Act Two, and uh, this takes place in the Palazzo Farnese, Scarpia's private rooms. And here Puccini has painted a kind of a casual evil. It's very nonchalant, very not, not aggressive, just very um, casual. <laughs> recognize that melody because it was what Cavaradossi sang in Act One when he was uh, comparing Tosca's eyes. Mm -hmm. 
But here it's just kind of stuck in, uh, just... first meets Scarpia, he is, after all, a nobleman, he's an aristocrat, and uh, we, don't, uh, we don't see him in the uh, depth of his profound depravity the way, we, um, the way we heard him at the end of Act Two. Now, we come to a moment when there is an offstage orchestra, because Tosca is uh, scheduled to sing for this festive occasion. And um, as I mentioned, Puccini was searching in his student works for something that was Baroque. And as he looked, he found something by another Puccini, his brother Michele. And it was so perfect that he used it. Now, Michele had already passed away, so he used it saying that he gave his brother's music another life. And it's a, it's a lovely little melody. So the singing continues, and Cavaradossi is brought into the chambers to be questioned by Scarpia. And at this point, Tosca has joined the singing. There is a choral moment, and as Cavaradossi comes in and is being questioned and is being very rude to Scarpia, um, he hears Tosca's voice outside. And this is one of the more complex moments in the opera in terms of the number of things that are going on simultaneously. There is the, the conversation between Cavaradossi and Scarpia happening on stage. Then off stage, we have the chorus singing and Tosca singing as a solo. And all of this is happening at the same time. It really gives opera many layers, something that you can't do in a play. If you have people saying, talking simultaneously, all it sounds is confusing. But in an opera, you can have these many things happening at the same time, and we can understand each of the separate layers, and we can also understand their whole. Well, once Cavaradossi has been sent off stage to be tortured, Scarpia has his aria and his philosophy, which is in stark contrast to Cavaradossi. And uh, his Aria has little poetry about it. It's very aggressive and it's very stark.
little poetry about that aria. So then we come to perhaps the most famous aria in the entire opera, Visidarte. This aria was almost cut from the opera. And the reason for that is that the action stops completely and Tosca has this, this moment, uh, this bubble in time where she says, why? Why is this happening to me? I've devoted my life to art and beauty and why? Why? Why me, basically? Um, but of course, it was not cut and every soprano in the universe is grateful for that because it is beautiful and very simple and it starts out just with some chords. Later we hear Tosca's beautiful melody that we heard in Act One.
One of my favorite musical moments in the opera happens actually underneath the action very subtly at first, and that is the scene where Tosca has convinced Scarpia to write a free passage for her and for Mario. And he is at his writing desk, writing this for her, and she is trying to figure out what she's going to do. She has already agreed to submit to Scarpia in order to save Cavaradossi, but she's miserable about that. And as she walks about the table, she sees the knife, the bread knife, lying on the table. And now she knows what she must do. But this is the very beautiful music that happens while Scarpia is uh, writing the free passage. And it comes back several times. Then we hear these chords. And we see that she has seen the knife, and of course the brutal murder happens right after that. In Act Three, Puccini was very scrupulous about wanting to paint a tone poem of Rome in the early hours of the morning. So he has um, the element of a shepherd, a shepherd boy singing from off stage, and he was very adamant about having a Roman dialect and using the kind of music that might be sung by such a, a peasant. And he used the Lydian scale as opposed to the major scale. The Lydian scale has that raised fourth. And this is what it sounds like when the, uh, the shepherd boy sings. this very tranquil mood, and that mood is further, um, is further set by the sound of bells in the morning. Now, 
Puccini was so fanatic about wanting to have the exact pitches of those bells and the distance that they were. So he spent the night um, at the, at the uh, location where this actually takes place and uh, indicated in the score which bells were close, which bells were far, which bells were in between, and uh, what the pitches were. So let me start out by playing you just the bells themselves and then how Puccini uh, set the harmonies underneath them. very contrasting, and this is the way he harmonizes them. this very tranquil mood, which is, of course, going to be in contrast to what is coming up, which is the aria that was so controversial between Puccini and his librettists, um, this last aria of uh, Cavaradossi, where they had wanted him to have a hymn and a farewell to life and art, which was very philosophical, and Puccini said, no, he's saying goodbye to one thing. He's saying goodbye to Tosca. And his words, muoio disperato, I die desperate, is really encapsulated in this, this melody of such pathos. And he wrote the melody first, and then the words were fit to it.
I had mentioned earlier that the publisher, Ricordi, objected to um, Cavaradossi's Act Three aria because he said that the music was not worthy of the beautiful poetic text, O Dolci Mani, and besides, the music had come from Edgar. But Puccini was very adamant about wanting to use this, and he actually played it for Ricordi, and Ricordi finally agreed that, yes, this was um, appropriate music for the scene. And it really is very lovely. It's very simple, but very beautiful. Puccini's music for Tosca is legendary. It constitutes a shift in his musical vocabulary. As I said earlier, um, Puccini considered himself a romantic composer, and jumping into Verismo was a big step for him. But the beautiful thing about his music is that it never loses its romantic character. And even though, yes, there is brutality, and yes, there is violence, 
there are these gorgeous, overarching arias for the principles, for the two principles. And Puccini never loses that touch of beauty and of lyricism. Mozart had said many uh, centuries before that even when you're singing about an emotion that is ugly or um, aggressive or unpleasant, the music must never be ugly. And I think Puccini has achieved that. Um, this music has passion and brutality in it, but it's never ugly. There's always beauty in it. And he achieves the effect that he wants without having to hit you over the head with it or make you run out of the theater holding your ears. So I believe that Tosca has lived at the top of the opera charts for a very good reason. And I hope you will enjoy tonight's performance. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. That was composer, conductor, and Metropolitan Opera Guild lecturer Victoria Bond talking about Puccini's Tosca. If you enjoyed this episode of our podcast and are in the New York area, we invite you to join us for Victoria's continuing opera education course, Writing for the Opera Orchestra. This is a three-session exploration of how different composers, all represented at the Met this season, weave together in orchestral fabric of sound. For more information, visit metguild.org lectures. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening. <laughs>